I'm David Torsivia. I'm Daniel Forkner. And this is Ashes, Ashes, a show about systemic issues, cracks in civilization, collapse of the environment, and if we're unlucky, the end of the world. But if we learn from all of this, maybe we can stop that. The world might be broken, but it doesn't have to be. The mobility that Americans prize so highly is the final ingredient in the debasement of housing. The freedom to pick up and move is a premise of the national experience. It is the physical expression of the freedom to move upward socially. The automobile allowed this expression to be carried to absurd extremes. Our obsession with mobility, the urge to move on every few years, stands at odds with the wish to endure in a beloved place. And no place can be worthy of that kind of deep love if we are willing to abandon it on short notice for a few extra dollars. Rather, we choose to live in no place, and our dwellings show it. In every corner of the nation, we have built places unworthy of love and move on from them without regret. But move on to what? Where is the ultimate destination? when every place is no place. That's an excerpt from a book titled The Geography of Nowhere, The Rise and Decline of America's Man-Made Landscape by James Kunstler. And we'll be reading a couple excerpts from it as we go through a little historical suburban landscape, David. We're going to take a drive down uh, memory lane, if you will. Well, I mean, it should be sort of obvious at this point with that quote. And with the title of this episode, whatever that is, uh, that we are today talking about suburbs, a place that many of us grew up here in the United States, but increasingly around the world as well. Uh, And uh, that is where a lot of people spend most of their lives. And it's sort of something interesting to me that I think about with suburbs is that these are extremely designed. So uh, if you're in Europe or something and you grow up in a city, you know, that city has been there for hundreds of years. And it's sort of an evolved organism that ended up that way if we ignore, you know, periodic rebuilding attempts like what happened in Paris or after rebuilding from World War II, whatever. But, but bear with me for, for the sake of this example. Sure. But suburbs, by and large, are a fairly recent invention. And even beyond that, suburbs are constantly being built all around this country uh, in increasingly far-flung places. And they are very deliberately designed in order to create them as that image that we all see in our head when we say the suburbs. And to me, that's kind of weird. What do you mean? Why is it weird, David? Well, uh, so we are building these places to live from scratch. And I mean, it's a lot of work to build a new place. It's a lot of work to build a town. It's a lot of work to move all these resources, the energy, the money. And it's strange in my eyes, at least, that we decided to design them in the way that a suburb is. I mean, play with me for just a second here, Daniel. Uh, All right. Okay. I want you to close your eyes. Okay. And I promise everyone, I can't see Daniel either, but I assume he's closing his eyes. Uh, and, and you, the listener, you join us with this. So close your eyes. And I want you- unless, unless you're driving. What? Don't close your eyes if you're driving. So, okay, yeah. Don't close your eyes if you're driving. That's, that's good. Or flying a plane. Mm. Or, or maybe not flying a plane. If you're landing- You could probably get away with it for like yeah. 30 seconds or so. Yeah. Okay. Well, close your eyes if it's safe so we don't get sued. Okay, so everyone, close, close your eyes if it's safe. And then I want you to imagine in your head the uh, perfect place to live. 
Like if, if there was no question of, of money or resources or jobs or family, or what does your ideal place to live look like? Now, I mean, sh- share with me here, Daniel. <laughs> what does your ideal okay. place to live look like? <clears throat> so I don't know how realistic this is, but I'm imagining... Um, I swear to God, if you say Zeppelin. <laughs> well, that's, that's part of the public transportation network that, that's in my head. But my residence is near a river, uh, p- uh, perhaps a waterfall's not far away, uh, a bunch of other clustered homes uh, around where I live, but they all like uh, revolve around some kind of central place. We have we all have like a, some small farms in our backyard that kind of feed everybody. And then right there, maybe like 20 minute walk from us is a train station that we can get on. And an hour later, we're in this like modern mega city metropolis with basically everything your heart could desire. Ice cream uh, and other things like that. You know, you can make ice cream yourself on your farm. It's it's not too hard. No, no, I don't have uh, cows on my No farm. cows? No. Can you make ice cream from goat milk? Mm, I've never tried that before. Is Somebody write us. Let us know if that's thing or if it's good. Um. Yeah, okay, okay, Daniel. I think that's a very picturesque, very typical sort of imagination. Oh, yes. And of course, if you climb to the top of the waterfall, you are greeted by a man uh-huh. or a woman okay. uh, or a person who will lead you into a door that is the carriage base of a giant Zeppelin that takes you anywhere you want to go. It's a, it's a, it's a Zeppelin pirate army, David. Well, okay, good. This place is looking up. I will move into your little community. Uh, your little village, I think, is the word I would actually use to describe it. And, and that actually is a very similar description, minus the Zeppelin capital uh, and, and the maybe not even the megacity train, but of, of villages all around the world, of farming communities, of rural communities. And that word, community, I think is really important. Uh, but that's not for whatever reason that we keep building. We keep building, I, and I don't think anyone pictures this, but rows and rows of identical houses that are set apart from each other at very awkward distances. It's not far enough to feel like you have some sort of solitude and it's not close enough to feel like you have a homogenous community instead it's this fake separation designed to maximize the value of whatever lot that this is all placed upon um i I think to intensify the lawns that are going on and this episode i promise won't turn into a two-hour long lawn rant as much as i want to do that but but no one would imagine this no one would imagine a gate of your community preventing other people from getting along no one would imagine a place where you have to drive 20 to 30 minutes in order to do simple errands no one would imagine places where nobody is outside, nobody's communicating with anybody else, nobody's out walking or, or, or doing errands or whatever it is, unless they have to for their dog or whatever. But increasingly, this horrible image of a place where everybody's cut off from each other, where we've for some reason intentionally designed isolation into being a feature and then paid huge amounts of money for it, is increasingly what we're building around this country. And because the United States has such a large cultural impact around the world, we're starting to see this spread, this sickness in all sorts of countries around the world. And that is terrifying. So today I really want to examine where does this come from? Why does this happen here? And why does this continue to be a blight on the land instead of something that we've looked at like, well, that was a failed experiment. Now let's, let's make something better. Yeah. I think if, if other countries are modeling the tracked housing that the, the developers in the United States have perfected, that could be quite possibly the worst thing we've ever exported, uh, not including 
you know, uh, militarization. But I think this is a, a great thing to explore. And I want to go through a little bit of the back history to kind of maybe give us a clue of one of those questions you asked, David, of like how we got here. Um, but I want to just lay out like a very simple framework of what I would, I would describe the chief complaints of what suburban lifestyle has become in the United States. It's a way of living that first and foremost, most any American can relate to. Uh, many Americans live in a suburban landscape currently or have passed through one or know what to picture when we say uh, suburban sprawl. And it's now been, it's, it's become so normalized that it's largely taken for granted as just a normal way of life. It has destroyed communities like you talked about and really destroyed a general sense of place. Buildings of different uses like schools, offices, homes, and stores have been dispersed from one another and left with no coherent relationship to one another, while national corporations taking advantage of people's increasing reliance, at this point cemented reliance on automobiles, has uprooted and eroded local economies that were once made up of locals who reinvested their earnings into their communities. Suburban lifestyle has destroyed much of our agricultural land, which we need if we're going to survive the coming fall of industrial food production. This way of life is currently bankrupting our municipal budgets and economy across the nation. We simply cannot afford it. Uh, there are countless health consequences of the suburban way of life, slowly killing everybody. And unfortunately, because it's been taken for granted, an alternate way of living has largely been forgotten by whole generations who have grown up their entire lives within the framework of suburban living. This is a point I think is really interesting and something I'm going to address later on in this episode, but it reminds me of things that we've talked about before, Daniel, on this show, not necessarily in terms of the way people live, but in what's lost ecologically speaking, mm -hmm. whereas every single generation sees the world get a little bit worse, environmentally speaking anyway, and the vast multitudes of life and the amazing images and wonder and amazement that they would provide the travelers of the world have been increasingly lost. No one alive anymore remembers endless herds of buffalo. No one alive has ever seen cod schools so thick that ships can't go through them or skies full of birds that block out the sun. These things are gone. They're lost. And because they've been lost, each generation doesn't know what they're missing out on. And it's interesting now that we're sort of moving into this, not just in, in environmental questions, but in the way that we live. These cultures and traditions that were so important, that were fostered over hundreds or thousands of years of learned experience of what works and what doesn't have been thrown away because the technological innovations that we said were an improvement and we're increasingly realizing were exactly the opposite of that. Yeah. And we talk about that tragic loss of, of species that we've forgotten in episode 34, Irreplaceable. But let's jump into a little history, David. I, you know, you gave me a great history lesson in that uh, episode on intellectual property and, and the one on maps and things like that. So uh, le let me give you a little history lesson here. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So as, as we've talked about elsewhere, land ownership in Europe under traditional English law followed a feudal relationship. That is, the crown technically owned all the land. The feudal overlords had control over some of that land. And within that, the overlord granted fiefs or small property rights, like the ability to live on the land to vassal. You can also think of them as just poor peasants. 
Those peasants were expected to provide the overlord with several things in exchange for their fiefs, like uh, military service, portions of their crop yields, their wives on their wedding day. You, you know, the typically fair exchanges for living on the land, right? Yeah, totally. Well, when settlers came to the new world to set up their towns, they did so in large part to escape direct control of the crown and to live out very passionate individualistic values. Uh, and so once the colonists severed ties with the English monarchy after the Revolutionary War, property law in the United States was built on the foundation of a different model of property ownership known as fee simple. Now, n- the word fee is derived from feudalism and the fact that peasants held land in fealty. And the word simple describes the fact that property rights are transferred or controlled with no obligation to anyone else once the cash has been forked over. And so with the exception of things like uh, property taxes, uh, conditionalities that can arise from deed restrictions and the selling off of particular property rights like the mineral rights underneath you, for the most part, owning land in the United States was very simple. If you paid for it and someone transferred the property to you, you owned it forever and ever. You could do with it whatever you liked, and no one could require you to give up your wife or crop yields as a condition to holding that property. And and this is important to the eventual development of suburbs because the very foundation of property ownership in America became enshrined around the idea that individuals had not just the right to do whatever they pleased with their land, but that they had the right to profit economically from their land as a source of perpetual capital accumulation. For example, one of the other English laws that got abolished was the ability for a landowner to prevent the sale of his or her land by their descendants after their death. And this was really radical at the time for several reasons. Most significantly, it eliminated the idea of common land. So despite the exploitative relationship that existed between feudal overlord and vassal, before the process of enclosure, uh, there existed a great deal of land in Europe that was considered common property for all and something to be used as spheres of public life. It was used for communities to gather, to share resources, to sing and to dance and to dine together, all these good things, right? But under the American system, this simply did not exist. Land is not something that has any social or communal value under the American system. It is only valuable in so much as its owner can derive profit for himself. So if the owner happens to own a forest that everyone around them could benefit from, uh, but the owner could make some money clearing it and selling it off, there's nothing to stop them from doing so. Another radical transformation that this entailed is It enabled land to become a means of financial speculation because it was now possible to purchase huge tracts of land, subdivide them into smaller parcels, and sell them off for a profit at a greater value than the total whole that was originally invested. Okay, well, that's a lot of good points there, Daniel. And I also read some of this book, and uh, I have this quote marked down here that I think is relevant and is uh, related to the sort of distinction that you're talking about with a European way of seeing things, uh, cities, towns, whatever, and the very American individualistic way that emerged from this modification of these long-held rules. So uh, here's the quote. The great cities of Europe, long a building, were at once sitters of political, commercial, ecclesiastical, 
and military power, and they showed it not just in their finely grained urban fabrics, their plazas, forecourts, esplanades, and galleries, but in the overarching civic consciousness with which building and spaces were tied together as an organic whole, reflecting the idea of civilization as a spiritual enterprise. In contrast, American cities flourished almost solely as centers of business. What business required was offices, factories, housing for workers, and little else. The use of the space itself, of the real estate, was a foregone conclusion. Maximize the building lot, period. Mm. Yeah, I feel like that's a foreshadow of what you were talking about earlier, David, of just the disregard for community and really the way like our physical place comes together to enable the type of village that I described in my eyes closed fantasy, right? Well, to be fair, uh, American cities, suburbs, uh, towns are really designed with several things in mind and, and built around them in, a, in an exceptionally great way. Um, but what those things are might not be what you expect. And I'll, I'll talk about that in a little bit. Ooh, I can't wait, David. I kind of want to just like skip my history part and uh, just skip to your. I'll, I'll, I'll just uh, I'll, I'll spoil it for you. Okay. No, actually, I won't. Keep going. Ah, thank you. Um, yeah. Okay. So cities, you know, were designed this way, but similarly, we hear about the great settling of the West in the United States, and there was a huge effort by our government to mobilize the great masses to actually do that settling in the West and Midwest. And the way they did that is they effectively took a map drew straight lines up and down it to form squares, and then divvied those squares up to anyone that wanted one. And from a bureaucratic perspective, this was possibly the most efficient and seamless way to divvy up the land, but it certainly didn't leave much consideration for public spaces or any other uh, type of planned communities, right? But speaking of planned communities, I want to just briefly mention the very first suburban communities in America. Um, because as you might imagine, living in one of those American cities you described was pretty oppressive, right? With worker housing built right next to dirty factories, you know, horses going up and down the streets, excreting waste everywhere and just like dying all over the place. <laughs> just horses flopping down on the ground. People are like trying to go get some milk. Their horse. Oh, sorry, honey. My, the horse died on the way to work today. This is something people don't think about, but it's true. Uh, in New York City, as many as 40 horses died on the streets every single day. That's not something that a lot of people wanted necessarily to be around all the time, right? And of course, the wealthy wanted an escape, and they had the means to do so. And they found that escape in the form of the very first planned suburban communities, such as Llewellyn Park in New Jersey and Riverside just outside Chicago. Uh, Llewellyn Park was finished in 1855. It covered a few hundred acres with homes surrounded by huge 20-acre wooded lots. It was beautiful landscaping. It was just 12 miles outside New York City by train, which was an easy commute to and from work for the wealthy businessman looking to escape the very air that the factory he owned mm. created. And that's a point I want to come back to, but keep going. Yeah, jot that down. I am. I'm jotting. And a uh, notable titan of industry, Thomas Edison, was one of the early inhabitants of Llewellyn Park. Notable asshole, Thomas Edison. What is it with all these like self-proclaimed uh, heroes of humanity, inventors and visionaries being just like total assholes and, and kind of crooks? But we don't need another Elon Musk grant. Keep going. The, uh, Elon Musk, David, he's a great guy. You know, uh, one of the Stop pioneers. This. Keep going. <laughs> okay. Um, 
So uh, shortly after Llewellyn Park came Riverside, again, right outside Chicago. This was only nine minutes away from downtown by train. Uh, It was built in 1869 on 1,500 acres. Also designed for walkability, each home was less than a 10-minute walk from the train station. Now, there are some notable differences between these suburban communities of the early wealthy elite and the ones we see today. First and foremost, they were getaways for the rich. The houses themselves functioned like factories of comfort, with armies of servants required to maintain the stable of horses, prepare the food, produce the food, since there were no supermarkets. They actually had to have their own cows in the backyard, right? their own home gardens. Uh, The roads were often designed deliberately to invite walking with beautiful shrubs and plant trees and end points at great statues or fountains to provide a sense of destination and arrival as you went about the uh, community. The modern suburban road today, however, is designed specifically to move cars about as efficiently as possible at speeds greater than 30 miles per hour. And for that reason, they are quite hostile to the pedestrian. Most suburban communities today don't even have sidewalks, David. Wow. Yeah. And of course, another great difference between these communities is that before the rise of the automobile, all suburbs were designed around a form of public transportation that could funnel people quickly in and out of the city where they ultimately worked. And obviously, this, this is a point we'll come back to. That's not at all the case today. But, you know, there were some similarities, however, in the wealthy suburban communities and the ones we have today, David. They really do function to serve as a part of this great industrial assembly line, if you will, and ultimately to make the developer rich. Here's an excerpt from the book. Quote, There was a reason that suburbs like Riverside didn't develop proper civic centers. They were not civic places. That is, they were not towns. They were real estate ventures lent an aura of permanence by the way of historical architecture and picturesque landscaping. They had not developed organically over time, and they lacked many civic institutions that can only develop over time. They were a rapid response to a closely linked chain of industrial innovations, steam power, railroads, and the factory system. More, these suburbs were a refuge from the evil consequences of those innovations. From the smoke, the filth, the noise, the crowding, the human misery, built for those who benefited from industrial activities, end quote. And I guess what I mean when I say that our suburban communities of today kind of are part of a great industrial assembly line of our economy is, again, because they're not real places. They're not authentic spaces, right? They, they don't have any function other than to funnel people into their sites of work. They don't produce food. They don't generate anything of value except a, a place for someone to rest their head at night, meanwhile taking up all the land that we could use for something better and spacing themselves out so far that we really uh, can't even afford them. But, but, but we'll come back to that. Mm, that famous phrase. Now, uh, I think there's one thing that we do need to mention here, Daniel, but I really don't want to go too deep to this topic, but it absolutely is critical to this story, and and that is house construction and the innovations that made mass-scale tract housing development possible. I mean, it used to be extremely expensive to build a house. Support beams were these huge logs and needed sturdy columns, and in fact, iron nails, which is something we take for granted now, they were so expensive that in the first half of the 19th century, New Englanders would actually dismantle the interior 
of farmhouses just so they could take the nails with them to Ohio or wherever else they, they moved. But in Chicago, builders had created a new innovative building method using these thin wooden studs to quickly frame a house using just hammer and nails. But then, of course, in 1871, an enormous fire wiped out 17,000 wooden buildings in Chicago, prompting a new law prohibiting wooden construction in the city. That's, that's just smart, David. Just smart. Okay, well, all the newly displaced working people who could not afford the new, more expensive housing the city had to construct in order to replace all these lost homes, well, they were pushed to the outskirts of the city where a wave of speculative developers had cleverly built thousands and thousands of monotonous, cheap wooden homes on these tiny lots. And this trend wasn't unique to Chicago at this point, but the rural outskirts of many cities at this point were being gobbled up by developers who realized that they could start offering these cheap suburban homes and make a tidy profit. Yeah, that's all good and well, David. Uh, building construction, whatever. World War I comes, then the Great Depression, then World War II, uh, and everything, everything changed. All the great architectural tradition of, of building construction was pretty much swept under the rug. This was a new era for America. Our factories were bursting at the seams with industrial capacity. Uh, and as we discussed in episode 11, Designing Deception, the entire economy was reoriented to encourage consumer demand for whatever pointless junk those factories could produce, whatever kept them churning out goods, right? And of course, at this time, the United States sits atop the global economy, having built up its industrial capacity during the wars while suffering none of the consequences of like actual bombs, you know, destroying your infrastructure. So we were in a pretty good economic spot. We lent the money for other countries to buy our exports. And then we turned around and used the economic growth that we experienced to fuel the greatest infrastructural expansion the world had ever seen. And one of the most important parts of this was that we started subsidizing home ownership by making mortgage payments tax deductible. And then the government made these generous government backed loans, which made it possible to own a home without even making a down payment. Mm. And this was all to kick off the economy, to keep things going after the war economy slowed down and to give something for those GIs when they were coming back to buy into. Well, not to mention, David, uh, you know, all these factories, right? They, they were producing so much stuff. They were literally bursting at the seams, like I mentioned. And what better way to get Americans to buy more and more junk by basically getting them to take on debt to purchase a big box where they could put all that stuff, right? I mean toasters, uh, uh, vacuum cleaners, cribs for their babies, right? I mean, all yeah. kinds of stuff. You still got that toaster addiction going on. Yeah. One a week. One a week. Well, all these white blue collar workers that came back from the war, they fled the cities. And for the first time, as we talked about in that lawn rant, they felt like little lords. Mm -hmm. They had their own tiny versions <laughs> of those early rich mansions in places like the Welland on the outskirts of town, while developers like William Levitt put up as many as 150 prefabricated houses a day to fill this demand. So we're taking the lessons learned from the war economy, this production, uh, directing things like uh, Edward Bernays talked about in their episode about him with uh, being able to develop the need for consumer in order to make this excess industrial capacity actually produce things that can be profitable. And, and we've taken these lessons and applied them not just to consumer products, but homes, 
the very things that will enclose these consumers and give them places to put all the stuff that we want them to buy. Exactly. Uh, let me read you a quote, David, that probably sums it up better than you or especially I uh, could. So, Are you insulting my rambling? David, there's no, you, there's no rambling of yours that would possibly be found in a coherent book anywhere on this planet. <laughs> okay, go ahead. <laughs> give, us, give us something coherent. <clears throat> quote, The American dream of a cottage on its own sacred plot of earth was finally the only economically rational choice. By the time the merchant builders like Levitt and his kindred spirits got through packaging it, however, it was less a dream than a cruel parody. The place where the dream house stood, a subdivision of many other identical dream houses, was neither the country nor the city. It was no place. If anything, it combined the worst social elements of the city and country and none of the best elements. As in the real country, everything was spread out and hard to get to without a car. There were no cultural institutions. And yet, like, I don't know if I would say the country has no cultural institutions. Anyway, and yet, like the city, the suburb afforded no escape from other people into nature. Except for some trees and shrubs, nature had been obliterated by the relentless blocks full of houses. But whatever its shortcomings as a place to live, the suburban subdivision was unquestionably a successful product. For many, it was a vast improvement over what they were used to. The main problem with it was that it dispensed with all the traditional connections and continuities of community life and replaced them with little more than cars and television. Daniel, I think we're wasting everybody's time here. How so, Dave? Well, we all know that the real conversation to have when we're talking about suburbs, when we're talking about sprawl, it's not these things like uh, mortgages or zoning or these boring topics. David, are you saying the concept of a mortgage just isn't roomy enough for you? Are you saying that zoning laws just move a little too slow for you? I mean, wh what are you saying here? I'm saying, Daniel, that I want a four-door, three-row uh, SUV with all the features. Give me eight cylinders of gas-guzzling joy. A uh, towing hitch that I'll never use and a big ass sunroof that I can open up once and then never touch again. I'm talking about the automobile, mm. Daniel, the key that makes everything else horrible and possible in the suburbs. Uh, this is the American tale. And we've talked about this a lot. I know we're always alluding to this eventual show on cars and we will absolutely do it because I hate them so. But the Ashes Ashes car show is Half-Life 3. <laughs> Except we'll actually make it one day. It'll be, it'll be the last episode. If we ever get to the car show, you know, this, this series is over. Um, no, I'm not going to get into it. But cars, the automobile, absolutely is the key cornerstone, or if you will, the keystone of this suburban sprawl conversation. Mm. I mean, we could say a lot about the interstate highway system, right? Just tons and tons of concrete. You know, enough concrete for a hundred cities we poured in a single year as we uh, constructed this massive highway system that radically reshaped physical space everywhere in the United States. That's probably for its own show. One thing that definitely happened during this time is we killed off streetcars and other public forms of transportation. You know, this happened like literally two blocks from me. Recently? No, not recently. Back when Robert Moses came in and, and decided to rebuild. Uh, New York as a interstate based system. 
And I know this episode's not about cities, it's about suburbs, but this happened everywhere. And yeah, if you go two blocks up from me uh, into Queens, there is a street there that used to have a local streetcar system. And in fact, they've been doing road work on this street, uh, installing new sewage pipes or uh, water mains or whatever. So they've cut into the road, the middle of it, and you can actually still, the tracks are still there. Mm. Like you can see the tracks. They're just like being covered over in asphalt. They didn't even bother removing them. Mm. Uh, the cobblestones are there and then the street uh, streetcar tracks are there. And then there's asphalt poured on top of that. That is now a busy street. And if you keep walking down that street, you can actually see the trolley houses where uh, the trolley cars used to be stored at the end of the sign right there on the underdonk line. And, and they're now garages. Uh, this is the legacy of what was once a very efficient, uh, very important connecting system. It is now a pile of rust under asphalt that is continuously ripped out and repaved for reasons that I can't understand. Well, it might not make sense from like, uh, like what would actually make sense because nothing in, in terms of the American infrastructure makes sense, David. But there is like a conspiracy that General Motors controlling a different company bought up a bunch of streetcar companies and intentionally ran them into the ground uh, to promote its cars and products and all that. That is true. They did do that. They were probably only involved in about 10% of the streetcar companies that failed. However, and perhaps one of the bigger problems was that the government was so heavily subsidizing the auto industry uh, that they really the streetcars really couldn't compete uh, having to run as private entities. They had five cent fare ceilings and all types of things they had to deal with. But not to get super deep into that, again, it'll be its own show. But you mentioned Robert Moses, David. He was perhaps the most infamous developer in American history. He used his authority presiding over quasi-governmental bodies that were totally divorced from public scrutiny uh, to build massive highway systems like you mentioned. But one of the things he did when he built these highways is that he removed the possibility of railroads ever being integrated with them, even though it would have been no additional cost to him, he just hated public transportation so much that he wanted to ensure that no one would ever <laughs> be able to put railroads on the highways the, that he built. And Moses most definitely influenced thousands of city planners and engineers who came after him, who have collectively reduced much of the decisions around zoning, building requirements, and road design to a few technical considerations that are packaged up, uh, sold to municipalities across the country, uh, which they just wholesale employ, outlawing the tr more traditional forms of buildings that kind of incorporate the town community feel. And of course, they largely reduce road construction to the simple math of how do you move cars as efficiently and quickly as possible with no consideration for how any other stakeholder might interact with those roads. Well, I, I want to talk about that in a second, but uh, this this talking about Robert Moses, one of my mortal enemies of history, um, just gave me an idea, and I, I decided to see where he was buried. And uh, he's up in the Bronx, actually, in Woodlawn Cemetery. So I might go pay his grave a visit and uh, leave a piece of my mind there. If anybody anybody else wants to, and you happen to be in New York, uh, just hop up the, to the Bronx at 233rd Street, and uh, you can go visit Robert Moses. I can't imagine what a piece of your mind might look like, David, yeah. but I wish you the best of luck on that. <laughs> Whatever helps me sleep at night, I guess. Um, wait, what are we talking about here? Uh, Suburban sprawl, David. Uh, sprawl. Okay, well, well, I, I just want to actually 
hit the pause button here, Daniel, because I've been rambling all over. You can tell it's one of those episodes, but... You could have said hit the brakes, but you said hit the pause button. Whatever. Hit the, hit the pause button. Uh, we're done with automobiles. I, I want to talk about, you know, what is sprawl? We keep using this term. Uh, we keep talking about it because when we're talking about suburbs is a bad thing. And if you haven't already figured it out, that's what we're doing. It doesn't necessarily have to be that that way. Like a suburb as a concept is is housing, lower density housing outside of a city, whatever. Uh, that doesn't have to be innately a terrible thing. You can have some really great, uh, amazing communities, towns, villages, uh, developments that are designed to create a positive atmosphere, a positive way of life that can be environmentally sustainable, whatever. All this is possible. But so much of the time, it's designed not to be for a variety of reasons, some of them encoded in laws, some of them being uh, economic drivers, and some of them being just dumb traditions and choices and whatever. But the real problem of all of this, of this horror that the suburbs are for so many people who grew up in it or have to drive through it or have to deal with it in any way, shape, or form. And, and yes, if you live in the United States, you absolutely are dealing with it because of the mindset it creates in people, which again, I'll, I'll get into. But uh, is, is this sprawl thing. So there, there's five components that you need in order to create the sprawl that we see in the suburbs. And so the first one is subdivisions. Okay. So these are the living spaces. In a traditional city, you have apartments, you have uh, townhouses, condos, whatever, and they're all very close to each other. Um, they flow naturally from one to another, but a subdivision is something that is much more contrived. And there is no logic to subdivision. Right. Uh, you come in and uh, the streets split off in all sorts of different directions and they don't make any sense. They don't follow natural geography. They don't follow any sort of grid pattern. It's just like uh, Jackson Pollock stood over a topographic map, dribbled some stuff and the uh, developer was like, yeah, that looks like a cool road plan. Let's throw in a couple cul-de-sacs and we're good to go. And uh, it leaves you disoriented, it leaves you confused, and more importantly, it leaves you cut off from everything else. So you could be backing up to a store or a, uh, a friend's house in another subdivision or whatever, but odds are there's probably a huge fence that divides you, some sort of design that is meant to subdivide this section off from the rest of the community. And the only way in or out is one or two entrances onto a main connecting road. So this is a really key component of the sprawl. Because it ensures that, and, and this is partially because of zoning laws that are single use, as well as the desire for a developer to create something that is seen in a purchaser's eyes as a valuable investment. Uh, and this is another component of leading to this disaster that we've seen today, where for some reason, uh, real estate has become the predominant form of investment for middle class uh, individuals. But that is key one. I'm, I'm just going to stop there. The subdivision. Okay. All right. Well, if you have somewhere to live, the next thing you need is somewhere to shop. No doubt. And that is the second important part of this. And this is malls and strip malls. And these things are, well, up until fairly recently, really unique to these suburbs and especially indicative of sprawl. So the strip mall is the ugliest form of this uh, manifestation where you might be driving through uh, a beautiful farm country and then you see in the distance a bunch of signs sticking up above the road, letting you know there's a bunch of places to shop, to eat, whatever. And next thing you know, and as you pull up to this, these signs, it's just endless lines of low flat concrete 
that don't have any sort of relation to the environment around them that are just stuck here, dropped in from wherever, and are invariably a line of chain restaurants that you can recognize anywhere in the world. Um, and it feels like you're everywhere else at once, that you're pulled out of the natural environment that you should be in and are set in this very sterile, designed place. Mm-hmm. People didn't like these a whole lot, so then they started building malls where they say, okay, well, we could bring people to these places and let them walk around inside and have a much more enjoyable experience. And if you see one store next to another, they're more likely to purchase things on the way to whatever their anchor store that they're trying to go is. And it, it can spur the uh, economic opportunities of all these merchants in one place. And I, I think it's a really interesting idea because it sort of admits what we've already known works well in cities and in well-planned communities, which is that when people walk, when you give them public spaces to hang out, uh, you spur economic activity. But we've, we've done this in like a weird cut-off way that is uniquely suburban and individualized and, and I think very indicative of this larger culture and the blight that we see. And that maybe is why we have so many of these malls just literally sitting as blight today as people's purchasing habits have changed. But these two components, strip malls and malls, are the number two important part of the suburban sprawl. So this is shopping. So you have a place to live. You have a place to shop. You have to drive from one to the other because you would never want to have a mall next to your house that would lower your property value. So already, you know, you're driving 20, 30 minutes to get there. Then you got to park, walk in, then come back, get in your car, drive. It takes a huge amount of time. Meanwhile, I in New York City just pop down the street. I get what I want. I pop upstairs. I'm done. Easy. No stress. Mm -hmm. Well, you still need a place to work. And so for a lot, uh, the suburbs is a place of refuge outside the city and you commute to the city to do that. Increasingly, in the first emergence of these suburbs, employers started chasing their employees as they moved farther and farther out, in large part because upper management didn't want to have to drive very far every day. So they found if they could build their headquarters in these suburban locations, it eased their commute and it would give uh, their employees, they would be happier because they didn't have to drive as far. The rent was lower and it seemed like a great option for everybody. So this led to the creation of office parks. These very dead, boring places of concrete, massive parking lots, and low-rise buildings, maybe one story for warehouse-types office parks, two, four, or five for larger buildings. They look out of place like an amalgamation between these uh, suburban strip malls and trying to be something taller like you might find in a city, but they can't build them tall like you would find in a city because it looks entirely out of place. So you, it, architecturally, they're disasters, aesthetically, they're hideous. And more importantly, once again, you find yourself subdivided and cut off from these other areas because zoning regulations require you to build things for single use. Typically, an area will be zoned for business. An area will be zoned for shopping. An area will be zoned for living. And these things very rarely intermingle up until at least on a wide scale very recently. And there's been a transition. We'll talk about that. But so you have this office park and because it is isolated from everything else, it makes very simple tasks difficult. So say I'm working there, I decide, oh, I didn't bring my lunch today. I don't want what's in the cafeteria, if there is a cafeteria. So I'm going to go out to eat. I've got an hour to do that. Oh no, a bunch of other people have the same thing. We're all competing against each other in the parking lot. We're trying to get out of the parking lot. I got to rush over to wherever, go through the drive through pick it up real quick. Maybe I eat it there. Maybe eat in my car on the way back. I'm like driving, competing, trying to get in. Now I'm trying to battle for parking spaces. Ah, it's stressful. It's exhausting. And I, I, I think those words are the like very strong defining words of the suburban experience 
this constant frustration with the driving and battling you have to do in order to do anything that in a traditional community-based neighborhood or city is, is just a matter of walking outside, walking a few minutes and, and getting done very quickly. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So whatever. That is a business park. That's point number three, a place to work. Point number four is the civil institution. These are the things you need in order to make this a larger suburb function. This is your city hall. This is your police station. This is your school. Uh, These things are usually designed in a more traditional setting. They're set off. They're well landscaped. They usually have some limited sort of public space, but oftentimes, once again, they're way out of the way. So you have to drive it. So even though there is public space there at this school, at this uh, courthouse, whatever, uh, it's not something you can easily access. You have to drive to this location, park your car, utilize the public space, then get back in your car and drive home. And so therefore, these public spaces traditionally go unused and, and has been one of the driving forces of the revitalization now of small towns across America who are trying to move away from this single zoning method and, and multi-zone their properties where uh, you'll see these town squares designed where the courthouse is the center position. And they've built a bunch of new developments that are mixed work, living facilities around it. We have on the ground shops, restaurants, above those apartments, and everybody can actually participate in the community, have everything there without having to hop into a car. Uh, And you can very quickly see why that might be more appealing than what we built instead. And the thing that connects all of this is the fifth and most important part of the sprawl, and that is roadways. Oh boy, Daniel, roadways. Americans built a phenomenal amount of roads. It's, it's more than twice per capita of basically anywhere else on Earth. Asphalt roads, highway roads, interstate roads. Boulevards, uh, connecting roads. One-way roads, two-way roads. Roads everywhere. That, if I had to define my suburban experience growing up in the suburbs, it's, it's, it's a story of roads. And roads that, like you, like you mentioned earlier, are not pedestrian friendly. If they have a sidewalk at all, it's usually small. Uh, it's usually never been walked on by people, so it's often overgrown. And if it is kept up by whatever landscape company they've hired, then for some reason, people yell at you when they drive by. They're like, what are you doing? Get out. Or they'll like curse at you or throw stuff. I don't know. I always had this. Maybe it doesn't happen anymore. Maybe it was just me. But like, people get angry that you're walking. Or routinely, I would have people stop and ask me, hey, are you okay? Do you need a ride? And I'd be like, I'm, I'm literally just walking to my friend's house. Yeah. I'm, it's not like a weird thing to be walking outside. But in the suburbs, it is. And it necessitates that you own a car in order to participate in this process, in, in order to live in these spaces. And that's one of the major things about suburbs and this sprawl is that it requires a larger investment of you as an individual in order to maintain this style of life that is ultimately incredibly unsustainable. Well, all these roads, all this distance has these compounding effects. So one of them is, as I mentioned, that you must own a car. And this is one of the major segregating forces of this style of living. And we didn't really address it, but part of the initial flight, and that is often the word used, to the suburbs from the cities was one of racial discrimination, where people were afraid of inner city minorities, of crime that they perceived as occurring in those places. And wanted to flee to what were initially white refuges, uh, places that they could afford and they could basically fortify from these uh, unwanted people via their increased economic mobility. You would have to be able to afford a car, oftentimes two cars as time went on, and, and women started entering the workforce in much larger numbers, in order to 
even exist in these places because there oftentimes are no public transportation options at all. And like we mentioned, if you want to do anything, you have to drive to go to that place because the enforcement of these zoning laws. So this is what I was talking about earlier, where some of this sprawl is literally designed into the code that we write and make law, where it's illegal to build things that make sense from a community or walking perspective. Right. In, in your imaginary town, Daniel, you had houses all around and they were providing for each other. And yours is maybe more utopian because everyone has a farm here. But like, imagine there was a corner store or a general store or something like that. Maybe a restaurant. You know, in your vision of the world, you would be able to walk to that. You wouldn't have to drive to that thing. Or it'd be on the first floor of my little downtown condo. Yeah, or, or something on the upper deck of your Zeppelin or behind the waterfall or whatever. Point is, is it's accessible on foot. Even your train station is a 20-minute walk, but still something extremely doable by an individual who doesn't necessarily have to own a car. And I mean, owning cars are expensive. Yes, you have the initial purchase, but also the upkeep, the maintenance, uh, the gasoline, the insurance, all these things add up. And I mean, decades ago, I don't have a current number, uh, it was estimated that owning a very small affordable car, like a Ford Focus, annually costs about $6,000 a year. And oftentimes in the suburbs, it's not just one car, it's two. Or if you have children, it's three or four. So let's say you have two cars at $12,000 annually. In five years, you spend $60,000 on cars in order to live in this place. I mean, that's a down payment on a home. That's a down payment on an apartment in a city uh, where you can forego all of this stuff. This is a very intentional decision to live in these places that we initially look at as a good deal, but when you start breaking down the math, it really isn't. And this doesn't carry just to the homeowners, but also the municipalities themselves, which you've alluded to, Daniel, and we've talked about on this show, but suburbs are really fucking expensive in order to operate and create. Yeah. Because of this extra distance between everything, you have that much more infrastructure. That means more roads. That means more upkeeps. That means longer pipes. That means more pipes. That means more wiring. All these things explode in cost because of this extra distance that we're utilizing because of this lower population density. And what is the benefit of it? What do we get out of this? Like, why do people live in here? Um, because they were fleeing the city and the original infrastructure that the community built was nice and shiny and enticing. And... Uh the maintenance cost of it hadn't caught up yet to increase taxes. Yeah, of course. Well, I mean, I spent some time, I actually spent a lot of time online looking for communities online where people were praising suburbs, talking about how much they loved it. And the things that I routinely saw was, you know, one, this space, people really enjoyed having space. Fine. Uh, They really loved schools. And uh, paradoxically, in America, uh, suburban communities tend to have better schools. Um, It's the opposite in, in many other places around the world where the cities have the best public schools you know, whatever, fair. And and that is more true for socioeconomic reasons because of this white flight, rather than any sort of innate form of schooling that is only available in the suburbs and not in the cities. It really comes down to dollars, but whatever. They feel safer, uh, which uh, we'll talk about later, but is actually completely not true. It's the opposite. Suburbs are significantly more deadly than cities for a variety of reasons, both in crime and other deaths. Um. And, uh, well, I mean, that, that was it. That was usually the end of the list. They're like, oh, I did it for my kids so they feel safe. I did it for uh, the schools for my kids. And I did it for the space because I can get more, you know, house for my buck, basically. And, mm-hmm. I mean, in the past, they would have also said, you know, 
that safety word is, is a coded word for racism, but and maybe it still is. Um, and, and maybe well, I'll talk about gated communities in a little bit, uh, why we see so many of those. But because so much of this is dependent upon the fact that the municipality can provide money to fund these services that people look for, predominantly these schools, predominantly upkeep of these roads, that means the community itself must always be growing in order to fuel the investment in these things. And when that growth starts to slow, when these initial investments need to start turning into maintenance costs, and you don't see the additional economic activity that those generate, as we talked about way back in one of our first episodes on infrastructure, you see this suburb begin to enter a death spiral. And they can't afford to fund themselves anymore, so they either have to raise taxes, oftentimes kicking people out, and punishing most, predominantly, the people who can't afford to move, or they need to continue spawning new growth, which means setting aside more land for development by changing zoning areas and thus in the process increasing the sprawl, saving themselves in the moment, but pushing out their future costs to even higher and basically dooming them down the road unless some sort of you know helicopter comes out and drops money on City Hall. Right. And, and it's why we've seen poverty grow so much faster recently in the suburbs compared to cities. Between 2000 and 2015, poverty in the suburbs outside Atlanta grew 126%. But since 1990, poverty across suburbs generally have increased 50% across the country. And that poverty growth is outpacing population by a factor of three. So it's not a simple case of just more poor people moving into suburbs. The poverty itself is occurring in the suburbs. Well, it's the suburbs creating the poverty. And I, I think that's really a point that needs to be driven home. It's uh, people like to uh, uh, assign this this problem, like you said, to people moving out of cities. And that, that is starting to happen very recently because uh, people are being priced out through gentrification processes. But the suburbs themselves, the way that they're inherently a more expensive way to live than in the city, means that it constantly is generating increased poverty in addition to its higher cost. And, and this is one of the, the greatest weaknesses of the suburban system and why it is inevitably doomed to always fail in the long term. Yeah, and, and it's obviously bankrupting municipalities in the process, which is probably where the poverty is coming from. And that episode that you alluded to where we talk about this more in depth is episode five, End of the Road, how we talk about the cost to maintain and build out that infrastructure gets more and more expensive the, the more spread out people become. And you know the obvious thing people point to is roads. Uh, I think I saw somewhere that two-thirds of Los Angeles is dedicated to just roads and parking lots. But like we discussed in that episode, this extends to just about every service you can imagine. Sewage lines, water pipes, the distance that ambulances have to travel to service somebody, which you know just increases as traffic congestion gets worse and worse. And Again, like, like you're talking about, this is all fine when you initially build the infrastructure because that's what attracts those new residents, boosting your tax base, leads to that growth that you're talking about. But what happens when those water pipes, which have an estimated lifespan of some 75 to 100 years, start to leak and you don't have the budget to pay for that maintenance, let alone replace the entire thing, right? All those water pipes. You know, if you haven't spent the money up to that point replacing them, you get runaway costs that can no longer be met by the tax base. It's a ticking time bomb. And I think that's what we're witnessing now is a form of slow collapse all over the country. I want to go back to a point you just made is that two thirds of Los Angeles is reportedly dedicated to roads and parking lots. And earlier in the episode, I mentioned that 
suburbs are really designed for one thing and one thing in mind, and it's not people. You think when we would design our environments and we're going to spend most of our life that most of this country is, well, not most, of this, but a significant portion of this country is spending most of their lives, that we would do so with them in mind. But they're not. The suburbs are designed entirely around the idea of the automobile. So much of the space, so much of the connection, it's all designed about making the automobile happy. You mentioned how roads oftentimes uh, don't pay any attention to pedestrians, aren't thinking about that. I mean, that happens on a very macro level. We're dividing what would be normally continuous flows of land that people could walk across um, into these subdivisions with these basically giant rivers of asphalt separating them. And, and yeah, you can cross them at a crosswalk, but oftentimes these crosswalks, especially on larger roads that many municipalities are moving towards uh, in order to help with the massive traffic problems that suburbs generate, which I'll talk about in a moment, become very dangerous. Uh, they divide people, they divide uh, animals, they're bad for the environment. Um, and, and oftentimes they're also dangerous for drivers themselves, which is one of the reasons why suburbs are just about the most dangerous place you can live anywhere in the world. If you don't die from a car as you're walking down your uh, suburban street, then uh, the crippling depression will get you. <laughs> well, I'll get to that. Don't worry. Um, but I, I mean, we can see this in a very visual way. So in the suburbs, just like look at one of these big box stores, look at one of these malls look, or one of these strip malls, whatever. Uh, just witness how much of that is dedicated to a parking lot. Right. This enormous asphalt, just massive area. And most of the time, this parking lot is predominantly empty. It's, it's, it's maybe like a third of the way full almost every, every day. It, it very rarely is ever more than that, except for maybe a couple days a year, on like Black Friday, uh, maybe during December, right around Christmas. Then, yeah, maybe these lots are at capacity. And in fact, news stations will often report like, oh, uh, Gwinnett Place Mall is at capacity or 90% capacity in, in the Christmas mall parking lot watch or whatever. It has never been at capacity for probably like 20 years. Well, maybe. Gwinnett Place Mall, yeah. But uh, incidentally, that's the mall in the new Stranger Things series. Hmm. For those, that's the mall I grew up going to. It's now Stranger Things 80s throwback mall. So, little fact. In this manner, we're dedicating huge amounts of our available space, huge amounts of our physical uh, aesthetic space to something that is used once or twice a year solely for cars, solely for this inefficient method of transportation and, and, and way of living. And, and you can carry this to almost every single section of the suburbs, the way that intersections are designed, the width of streets, uh, the turn radiuses of all this stuff. All of these things are designed with very specific quantified measurements from uh, engineers and architects' handbooks, but in a way that does not put people first, but does put the automobile first and tries above all else, above our sanity, above our health, in order to make sure that cars can constantly flow well. Hit that 30 mile per hour or plus section through every single part of our life and disrupt whatever flow might be possible that maybe one day generate community, we have decided that we're going to do our best to make sure that's not even possible. Okay, David, you said a lot, and I think there's a lot of intersecting ideas here. And I definitely want to come back to the shopping mall briefly because we can't talk about suburban sprawl without the shopping mall. But real quick, you know, you said a lot of things like, uh, I mean, early on, you mentioned how suburban uh, landscapes are inherently discriminatory. You talked about, you know, driving around, you see parking lots everywhere. And and this is also going back to what you mentioned about how it is literally illegal to design 
towns that make sense for people and communities to actually exist in them where you know you legally cannot put a building down without a large parking lot in many places you literally cannot build apartments on top of shops in many places you cannot build buildings that uh front the sidewalk and kind of invite the pedestrian feel and i think all these ideas intersect with a historical foundation that we mentioned in the very beginning of this episode which is land as a source of capital accumulation in addition to uh, possibly a, a historical accident uh, that that wasn't foreseen but so we talk ground zero maybe you could say <laughs> that's right david you could say that ground zero of capital accumulation is the ground oh, itself wow. <laughs> um and so bear with me i'm trying to intersect all these these ideas but also connecting this with the original suburban communities that I mentioned, Llewellyn Park and Riverside. These were escapes for the wealthy. And what do wealthy really hate, David, more than anything else in the world? Taxes. N- not quite. You think Poor people. Even, yes. <laughs> they hate, they especially, love, they especially hate uh, poor people living anywhere near them. So, this is one of the things that rich people were escaping from when they built these insular communities outside their cities. They wanted to be away from all the, the masses, right? And so they established uh, new zoning laws that were not present in cities. Cities were kind of designed at this time to integrate different incomes, different housings, and it kind of led to the serendipitous rubbing of shoulders of many different diverse people. Rich people didn't want that. So they created laws that prevented the construction of homes in their area that were lower density than something that could only be affordable by a rich person, right? You know, they would they would create zoning laws that say you can build a house here, but it has to be such and such square feet on such and such a lot. And that type of house, because of the construction costs, you know, you would only be able to afford it if you were a millionaire. And and in the same vein, they also didn't want their factories, which they were also escaping from, to be built right next to their community. So they also created this kind of separation of use zoning practice where uh, only residential homes can be built here. Nothing else can be built here. No convenience stores, no corner stores, no nothing, right? And this all carried forward when the automobile took, took first and center stage on the American landscape. We kept the old zoning laws that were really only designed for these suburban communities to fit the discriminatory ideals of rich people who had access to public transportation, and we replicated them in math. And it kind of institutionalized discrimination and racism because it encourages each class to discriminate against whoever is lower than them until eventually the poorest among us is all but guaranteed to live in the worst locations and conditions right? Suburbia itself aggravates racism and classism because in the same way that those wealthy people prevent the zoning of lower density housing, uh, if you're a middle class family, you also vote for zoning that prevents even lower density than or, or higher density than that, sorry, on and on until the poor are regulated to these very uh, high density projects in town somewhere that's far away from all, all, all the other people. Well, uh, I I think it's actually even worse than what you're saying here, Daniel. Because yeah, you know we have these these middle class, low class, uh, middle class, lower class, uh, upper class divisions, but subdivisions in particular, and the way that they've been marketed, create an even more narrow and specific uh, division in income, right? So so typically, yeah, if you can afford something uh, approximately, then you stay there. But 
subdivisions advertise themselves in a very specific uh, way where they'll have a sign that says like uh, summer meadows, uh, a new development from the 350s to the 375s. And it's right. narrowing down a very specific group of people who can afford a $375,000 payment over 30 years, less the mortgage or whatever. Um, and then you'll, next door, they'll build a, a slightly more upscale development that'll say uh, from the 450s to the 500s. And it, it maybe has a gate. It's a little bit fancier. And, and so your subdivisions are very narrow income brackets and probably the only people you're exposed to in an environment that isn't either your workplace or something where you're a, a consumer purchasing something from a retail worker. So once you're in these little uh, uh, divisions separated from everyone else, maybe you know your neighbors, but odds are your neighbors are going to be very similar to you because of your uh, very specific income capabilities. Your interactions with people outside of this are going to be your workplace, which once again are going to be people who are similar to you because you're employed in the same field, because you're doing the same work that pays approximately the same. And then everything else outside of that, unless you have some sort of hobby or something, is going to be you purchasing things from other people, from retailer workers. And that will be the limit of your exchanges with people who aren't in your very narrow income gap. So people's class experience is loss. People's uh, experience with people who are more diverse or different than them is very difficult to find. And the one thing that really generates empathy really well, study after study shows, is being exposed and living, specifically living among people who are different than you, who are different racially, who are different uh, in terms of sexual orientation, in terms of their gender, and especially in terms of their class. And uh, I mean, so my street, my, my block here in New York, just, just my block, okay? So it's a single block. I'm not even talking about my neighborhood. Just my block. I mean, hell, in, in my building alone, uh, there are people who live here who are rent-stabilized, mm-hmm. who can't afford more than a few hundred dollars a month on their rent. Then there are people here who are paying $2,000, $3,000, $4,000 a month on rent for an apartment, and they live right next to each other. We have everything in between. We have yeah. Old people who have lived here for literally 50, 60 years. We have babies. We have rich. We have wealthy. Uh, I walk down my street. I hear people speaking Polish. I hear people speaking Spanish. I hear people speaking all sorts of languages. Right. And that is literally all on my block. And this constant exposure to these diverse viewpoints, to these interesting people who understand things from very many different ways, breeds empathy among everybody. It breeds solidarity and class consciousness between everybody where you understand these different walks of life that we all have, but we feel like we're in this together because this is our block. This is our neighborhood. These are our trees. These are our sidewalks. We work together to make sure it stays clean and nice and whatever. You know your neighbors. In the suburbs, that doesn't happen. Maybe you know your neighbors. You probably hate them because they're on the homeowners association and they're mad that you put up a different color shed in your backyard or that your picket fence needs to be painted. Your backyard is probably fenced off from your neighbors to find some sort of privacy. If you know your neighbors at all, that is. I, I, I mean, and, and again, these are the people who are most similar to you in the entire world and half them hate each other. Yeah, that's a good point. I'm speaking from personal experience with my family members, um, from friends who all hate their neighbors. And these are the closest people to you in the world. And this is your entire world. You don't get this exposure to anything else. And, and so we've had an entire generation at this point now grow up, live their lives, born in the suburbs, 
go off to college, come back to the suburbs, raise their own family in the suburbs, and now are living childless in the suburbs. Of course, this is the baby boomers. And should we be surprised that these people who are exposed to nothing unusual or different or diverse in their life are by and large, you know, racist, xenophobic. We see all this this um, rhetoric on television uh, from from political leaders. We see all these disasters going on in increasingly polarized companies. Is this surprising? No, this is exactly what you would expect from an environment that is specifically designed to set you off and divide you from as many people as possible. The American individualism that is a plague on this earth, and I say that quite literally, a plague on this earth in terms yeah. of destruction of the earth, both environmentally, culturally, as well as literally in people's lives, from the, the, the wars that we fight, from the resources we exploit, from the violence that keeps up this extremely uh, unsustainable way of living that the suburbs are. I'll talk about that in a moment. None of this should be surprising because the suburbs inevitably lead to this disaster. Preach it. I hope someone uh, takes that and, uh, con- and, uh, and splices it with your lawn rat. We'll have a whole day. <laughs> just a, like a massive, we'll, we'll build like a one hour, just massive, like you just ranting on suburban. I'm going to just send it to my therapist. I've talked to her about suburbs a lot. And I feel like, like this is just me regurgitating all that as like one single. That's perfect. Well, um, this is only kind of related, but I just want to provide like this historical example of how much the rich hated the possi- even possibility that anyone lower than them would even potentially come within like sight of their property. So you're in New York, David, and the Gold Coast on the northern shore of Long Island you know, was one of the early locations of, of one of those great suburban getaways for the rich. Uh, huge mansions were built on this shore for the great titans of industry. And, uh, you know, they kept a tight-knit community. They talked amongst themselves and, and they devised ways to keep everyone else out. They built their huge mansions behind great walls. They armed them with guards. Uh, they controlled their own private police force. But here's the, here's the kicker, David. And this comes from Robert Caro's book, The Power Broker, specifically on the rise and fall of Robert Moses. Quote, the officials they controlled allowed all public roads not needed for their own access to their estates to fall into disrepair, to discourage public use. And lest the public turn instead to rail transportation, a group of them, led by Charles Pratt, who had learned how to handle annoyances from his mentor Rockefeller, bought sufficient stock in the Long Island Railroad to control its policies and saw to it that the railroad's North Shore lines were kept especially antiquated and rickety, end quote. So, uh, you know, they quite literally bought a railroad so they could make it suck so no one would want to ride it and possibly walk by their homes. And if that weren't enough, they uh, bribed the local officials to <laughs> make the roads uh, fall into disrepair so no one could drive on them. Bro, the free market's so efficient. Like it works so great. Uh, someone is literally buying a railroad to uh, sabotage it, but it makes sense in terms of the the larger free market. Like financially, w- what a broken system we have, and we uh, we still pretend that th- everything is great. That this is the best possible system. Um, sorry, sorry to interrupt. Keep going. Well, and, and to bring it back to what you're talking about, uh, you know, the division in suburban landscapes. In the county we grew up in, you know, apartment development, it's pretty highly politicized. It's extremely controversial. 
because it's it's a relatively rich county. No homeowners want apartments built in their districts. You know, they don't want families with lower incomes uh, that will move into the area. And school districts, right, are are usually the biggest factor in these decisions. For anyone listening outside of the United States, you have no idea how influential the school districts that you can send your children to kind of impact your housing decisions. And and how much money these school districts control in this process. Uh, Again, to reference the county that we both grew up in, they have an annual budget in the billions of dollars just for primary K-12 education. Right. You know, wealthy people want their kids all going to the same school while keeping the kids of lower income families out. And again, for our non-American listeners, you might find this hard to believe, but high school reputations are here, here are just as much about athletic performance than academics. And the brackets that high schools compete within are organized based on school size. So you have 1A for very small schools, then 2A, AAA, all the way up to 5A, 6A, and so on. I think, it doesn't it stop at 5A? All the way up to 5A. And... <laughs> Um, and there's one hundred a, and and there's one school here that has ranked consistently high for their mid level size, and in response to that, or maybe because of this, they've built a successful lobbying presence, persuading the town to block all new apartment developments, specifically so they don't get more kids and get bumped up into a more competitive athletic bracket where it where it might be harder to win those championships. All right, David, your ramblings have taken us way off the road here. I got a bunch more, but you keep going. Yeah, I was going to say off the track, but I internally corrected myself. Um, Mm -hmm. Like I said, we can't talk about suburban sprawl without mentioning the shopping mall. And, you know, we probably could do an entire show devoted just to the shopping mall, although probably it would be unnecessary at this point. I think everyone understands that the concept was a huge failure. um, And the evidence of that is in the countless malls abandoned and empty everywhere in the United States. But understanding why they were built in the first place is, kind of, is, is an important part of the suburban story. You touched on it a little bit, David, but I just want to provide some of the financial uh, kind of incentives behind the scenes. So you had President Reagan uh, came to power in 1981, and during his two administrations, the U.S. national debt doubled in large part from tax cuts for the wealthy. And at the same time, the financial sector underwent massive deregulation. And Kunstler writes about the effect on speculative mall development. Quote, Reagan's bank deregulation and tax policies promoted gigantic and unnecessary land development schemes that benefited their backers even when the schemes failed by any normal standards. This is how it worked. A developer and a bank would get together to build a shopping mall outside Denver. The bank would take enormous fees off the tops of the total investment as a reward for its participation. The development company would pay itself a large fee up front for supervising the construction. The money invested in the project would have come from federally insured bank deposits. For any number of reasons, the shopping mall might fail to attract enough retail tenants or customers too close to other established malls, too far from population centers, whatever, and go out of business. When the tumbleweeds blew through the empty parking lot, the banker could feel perfectly secure knowing that the deposits he had thrown away on a foolish venture would be fully repaid by the U.S. Treasury, while the developer's corporation would seek protection under the bankruptcy laws and the developer himself 
would hold on to his personal fortune without liability, end quote. And in addition to this deregulation, in the same way that land is used to accumulate capital in part through subdivision, such that the individual plots each sell for a combined amount greater than the whole, mall development kind of follows a similar tactic because every component that makes up a shopping mall can be sold. Once a developer completes a mall project, they can sell the land itself, then the building as a whole, then the individual pieces of the building, typically the parts that house anchor stores like Macy's, Dillard's, etc. They sell the right to manage the mall, and so on and so on. And once all these components are finally sold off, the developer is sitting on way more money than they started with, and they can just go right down the road to build another, even bigger mall. And this process has been fueled entirely by, again, our dependence on the automobile and our preference for suburban communities. Because all the people living in those vast monoculture tracts of houses have no choice but to drive long distances to malls with goods stocked by national corporations, which are the only companies that can usually afford the upfront capital necessary to enter a long-term high-rent lease. And in the process, right, any semblance of local economy that might have existed before is wiped out. But uh, by the time the surrounding community has been mined for all its wealth, the original developer has packed up all their profits and moved on to the next town with an even bigger retail monstrosity under construction. I keep coming back to this thing on this, Daniel. Well, I mean, a lot of things. That's why you keep hearing me say the same rant over and over again with slightly different variations here. But uh, I mean, the cost of all of this. So, I mean, you really focused just a second ago on the cost of these malls, uh, how the price of a long-term lease made it impossible for local businesses or smaller businesses to really participate this in any way. Right. Um, of course, what you neglected to mention is that now all malls are uh, local airsoft uh, courts. Uh, so that industry we have to thank for uh, the failing American mall. Now, uh, <laughs> and, the, and the ones that have no shops are actually impromptu skateboard park. So Yeah, it's true. I, I mean, I actually, I, I really do think we should do this mall episode at some point because there's a lot of uh, ideas for how to repurpose these malls into something really cool and radical. Um, and I think it's worth talking about, but not in the scope of this particular episode. So, uh, but, but going back to the cost, you know, just so much of this stuff is so expensive. The mall is expensive. Uh, the, the cost of once the mall is, is now bankrupt and empty, that's expensive. It's expensive on our aesthetic perspective. You drive past these old malls, they're just masses of empty cracking gray concrete with the siding peeling off spalling everywhere like it looks garbage and it of course depresses the the value of everything around it which leads us into one of these poverty death spirals as, as we've already mentioned but i mean all the roads that connect this stuff the massive amount of traffic all of this costs a lot of money so much money put into trying to make this traffic better and better um and then you know we'll widen the road people say and then next thing you know widening roads actually increases traffic in the long term. In the short term, you might improve it, but within four to five years, typically uh, the road is is now back to where it was before, but with even more cars, so it's worse. The popular um, metaphor for this that urban planners like to use is you don't lose weight by <laughs> loosening your belt. Um, that's basically what you're doing with the road. You expand it, but then you, you expand to fill it. And anyway, but I mean, all this costs money. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, the highways alone, just the roads, like, like these highways, these parking, these roads alone, there's an estimate that eight to 10% of the gross national product is 
devoted to supporting these systems, either building them out in the first place or maintaining them. I mean, that's a huge amount of potential investment that could be going into useful things. Instead, focus on upkeep of this system that invariably creates more problems than, than it fixes in the first place. Um, a, a lot of small towns have experimented with ripping out roads, uh, much to the screaming of developers, to, to the shouting of shop owners. And they found that when they ripped out roads, especially roads that are on shops or, or downtown and create instead spaces for people to walk, that it actually increases dramatically economic output of those areas around roads. It turns out people like being outside and walking when they're not scared of being run over or when there's pretty things to look at or there's stuff to do. So getting rid of these roads, which are supposed to spur economic activity, actually creates more economic output than the road does in the first place. Um, so, I mean, maybe that's something to talk about at the end of the show with what can we do, because there is a lot of potential here. But uh, the other thing is we're not even really paying for all this investment in the roads. So if we were to actually be paying for all the maintenance, the upkeep, the cost of building out all this pavement, and in my head, like the word that defines this sprawl is pavement, whether it's roads or parking lots, we would be paying something like three fifty per gallon in addition to the cost of fuel. And that doesn't even account for environmental damage, which would push that cost up to maybe over $9 a gallon, creating the, the subsidization, basically, of each individual car on the road by these costs, whether they're borne by taxpayers or the environment, is something of like five to $6,000 annually, which if we look at the cost of the car in the first place, now people are spending $12,000, $24,000 a year in order to have the luxury of driving these cars around. And and what luxury is it? Because the suburbs, oftentimes now, the, the work has moved back into the city. So we're both from Atlanta. Atlanta is one of the worst commuting cities in the country. Right. Most people drive 35 miles or more a day in order to go to work. Oftentimes, that's one to two hours of driving easily. I know people who do three hours of driving in a day in order to commute like this. And it's kind of funny, you know, because w- we fought really hard for the eight-hour workday, Right. People quite literally died in order to get us an eight-hour workday, reduced from the 10-hour workday that was typically done before. And they, the idea was, if we could recover these two hours, we would be so much happier. We could use it to pursue things that we cared about, art. We could learn things. We could spend time with our family. We could uh, create new opportunities economically if we wanted to do that, whatever. But all of that saving that happened, because this was primarily fought for in the cities with factory workers who would walk to their jobs, those two hours are gone. We've, we've squandered them on the suburbs because the extra two hours a day that we got from this, from 10 hours of working to eight hours of working is now spent in a car in the most frustrating way possible, trying to slowly make it to work, a place that you probably hate, and then trying to fight your way home just so you can get there and sit in this ridiculous house cut off from everything else, maybe venturing out in order to get some sort of uh, food or whatever, hurrying home again in your car, battling people on the road for that, and the increasing traffic you invariably see w- with your suburb as it more and more people move into it because suburbs generate much more traffic than comparable cities do despite the much lower population density, primarily because the road layouts are really dumb. Like all of that we fought for is lost. And what is, what is the, the toll of that? What is the psychic toll? No wonder people are so angry all the time. No wonder the suburbs are just filled with fucking wackos. Uh, and I, I know I keep coming back to this point, but it's not even just, just the parents. Uh, it's the kids, too. So, I mean, growing up, you might have heard the term cul-de-sac kid. Did you ever hear that, Daniel? Um, 
I, I, I knew people who lived on the cul-de-sac. Well, you kind of lived on a cul-de-sac. Almost, but not quite. I mean, my road went into a cul-de-sac. Is that <laughs> you lived in like a corner and then there was a cul-de-sac. Um, well, anyway, cul-de-sac kid is... So it, it, it's, it's funny that... Remember earlier I was talking about how people move to the suburbs specifically for their children because they see it as a safe place. That the kids can go out and play in the cul-de-sac. Cool, yeah. But like a cul-de-sac is a very small place. Uh, kids are roaming much less than ever before. And it, there's a variety of reasons why people say this is the case. Helicopter parenting, the world is more dangerous, um, which isn't really true at all. Um, but a predominant portion of it is that it's just impossible for kids to get around anywhere anymore. In a traditional neighborhood that was built in a small town or built with walking in mind, it's very easy for a kid to go out to walk somewhere to do that. I, I mean, here in New York, in New York City, I see kids all the time, like little kids. Maybe they're not hopping on the subway themselves, but like four or five year old and their mom's like, hey, go get some milk, you know, and the kid runs down and the bodega's at the end of the store. She, she gives her kid some money. The kid knows the bodega owner because they've been going there their whole life. They'll walk down to the bodega, get the milk, pay it. They walk back. Everyone on the street, you know, says hi to the kid because we all know them. And they come back home and they're like, hey, I got the milk. What is this? First, it saves the parent you know, a, a car trip that you would normally have to do in the suburbs. It gives the kid a sense of independence. It teaches the kid how to do this stuff themselves because very soon this will be a life skill that they'll have to do. But I mean, the kid's four or five. They already have this figured out. Right. Um, and by the time they're eight, this is, this is easy. They're, they're, they're wandering all over the neighborhood. By the time they're 12 or 13, they're wandering all over the city. And they're very safe doing that in a place that many people consider very dangerous, um, even though that it does not jive at all with statistics. But there's an independence and awareness of the world, security, um, and, and everything that, co that comes out of this experience of doing things that, that would give people in the suburbs a heart attack. And why does it give them a heart attack in the suburbs? Because everything feels so dangerous when you're cut off. Mm. When you're removed from anything, the possibility of imagining and venturing out this fortress that you built, oftentimes quite literally in a gated community, is terrifying for these parents. So they don't let them do that. So they're limited to the realms of these cul-de-sacs. And oftentimes solely that cul-de-sac, not even other parts of the same neighborhood. There's no private space for them to go. There's no woods to explore because they're all fenced off or cordoned off or sectioned into d different divisions that belong to someone else who won't let them on your land. No, you have this very limited place where you know your parents are watching you through the window. There's no sense of privacy. There's no place to learn things, make mistakes, or push the boundaries until eventually you get that car when you're 16 and your parents are desperate for some sort of independence because they're tired of having been your chauffeur for 15 years. Because the only way for a kid to go out and venture into the world is, hey, mom, could you drive me to my friend's house? Right. Maybe older, you know, you could ride a bike somewhere. But oftentimes, many parents don't even let that happen. Because, yeah, if it's in the same neighborhood, sure. But if you have to cross a major street, that's not going to fly. So what does this do with the kids? Parents are always trying to build up their kids' independence, you know. Uh, let me give you allowance to have some money to teach you some sort of responsibility with that money, teach you to spend it on your own, you know, grow up. It's an important skill to have. But what's the point when, hey, uh, here's your allowance. Thanks, mom. You can spend on anything you want. Okay, mom, could you drive me to the mall? Mm -hmm. You go to the mall. Your mom is there with you watching you buy something, probably does it for you. You hand your mom the money. She buys it. You hand it back. Like there's no growing that occurs in this process. You're just like making the process of your mom buying you something more complicated. And uh, of course, this is not a universal experience, but it is exceedingly common and something that the suburbs really lends themselves to. 
there's another book I've been reading. It's called Suburban Nation. Um, and there's a little passage they have in here about this cul-de-sac syndrome. It's as follows. Children are frozen in a form of infancy, utterly dependent on others, bereft of the ability to introduce variety into their own lives, robbed of the opportunity to make choices and exercise judgment. And I think that really eloquently sums up what we see here. And this cripples these kids. They have to figure this out at some point. It delays their onset. Maybe what a lot of boomers complain about with lazy millennials is some sort of spinoff from this cul-de-sac, overprotective, uh, helicopter parenting style that the suburbs lend themselves to. It almost makes a requirement when you're raising children. I don't know if this is exactly the same, but I used to walk to middle school because it was across the street from my neighborhood, uh, fortunately. And I used to cut through a neighbor's house because it basically uh, cut the time it took to walk in half. Um, otherwise, I had to go like this really roundabout way. And one time I was walking through uh, the, the backyard of this neighbor's house and they came out and they said, who do you think you are walking through my property? You, I want you to go back out there and you tell all your little friends, I don't want anybody walking through my property. You know, I don't know how your parents are raising you. But, and I, it just caught me off surprise. And uh, <laughs> yeah, well, I had the same thing happen to me. It's not because I was walking to school. I live, I live too far to walk. But the bus would drop me off. I could get off on this early stop and cut through my neighbor's backyard. Literally, my backyard neighbor. I cut through their backyard and get to my house quickly. And it would be one of the first stops. Or I could wait to go all the way through the neighborhood on the bus and eventually come back to mine like 30 or 40 minutes later. So I used to get off, hop through my neighbor's backyard. It, uh, Somebody that we know, like this is my, my literal backyard neighbor. And uh, they yelled at me for it. They said, no, this is my property. Do you see the fence? What you're doing is trespassing. Don't do that. And like, what the fuck's wrong with these people? Like when we go back to the, uh, not to get on my lawn rant, <laughs> but this conception that people with their property, with their lawns, with their fences become little lords uh, defending their territory from like the, the massive hordes who just want to cut through their yard or whatever. Like, like fuck off. You know? Just because you think you're a lord doesn't mean you have to be a tyrant. And this kind of paranoia, I think, is just so pervasive in the suburbs. And I don't know how much of it is just these fucking psychopaths decide to move there and live like this, or because uh, maybe they started off that way, but the suburbs just breathe this paranoia. They just breathe this way of thinking and interacting with people. And, and they make it so that's the only way to conceive your relationship with anybody, that it's the inevitable outcome of all this. And then, of course, you know, if that's the inevitable outcome of interpersonal relationships with the people who literally live right next to you, who are your peers in almost every single way. No wonder that we see the larger political climate spin out. And anytime somebody is an other and the other can be a very wide range of things that they say, fuck off. You know, I've got mine. Screw you. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the, I think what you're talking about, this this psychic damage is just really your expression of frustration at how suburban uh, landscapes destroy community. And, you know, I think your point about how they really segregate people based on income and then, you know, insulate them so that they only experience that. And I, th I think all this ties together. And, you know, one thing that's really obvious uh, about suburban communities, once you think about public space, is that there is no public space. There's no way to organize. There's no way to come together as people and discuss what's going on in, in, in your uh, communities and your surrounding area. There are a lot of private spaces that exist to kind of fill that niche, uh, perhaps churches being the most obvious. But 
again, going back to the shopping malls, these were places, huge sites of, of congregation where people came together because it was the only thing to do. It was the, literally the only place you could go in a suburban landscape where you could actually walk first and foremost, and then actually bump shoulders with strangers. And I think that appealed to a lot of people on this like really subconscious way that, that, that spoke to a need that they didn't realize that was missing. And uh, the only problem how, with that, of course, is that the mall, you know, being a private space, the owners had full control of what goes on inside. Uh, there's very little seating. It's all designed to funnel people into stores so that they'll spend money and not as a way for them to assemble. And in fact, if people did that, they'd likely get kicked out. Interestingly enough, I went to the Lights for Liberty vigil a few weeks ago, which was uh, just an event to stand in solidarity with the, the immigrant and refugee communities in this country. And it was held on the sidewalk of a, par, uh, of a mall uh, near where I lived. And I think the only reason they could do that is that it was a Latino mall and maybe the owners were sympathetic to the cause. But, you know, how interesting is it that the best place for us as a community to come together to hear speeches, to sing songs, and to hold hands with the immigrants in our communities who we support was at a shopping mall? You know, even now, I, it, it's incredible. And, you know, I finally realized today, David, why I've had such a hard time living in a suburb th these past two years, uh, specifically in the context of researching for this show. You know, sometimes it's hard for me to do this work, like not, not because the topics are difficult to engage in, but a lot of times I just lack the energy to just sit down and read. And sometimes I'll start at home and I'll be like, this isn't working. I'll try to go to a coffee shop. And then it's just one of those typical chains and I don't, it's not working for me either. I'll go to a, a, an office space that I'm fortunate enough to have access to, but uh, that's also a little bit lonely. Today, I spent several hours at home preparing for the show and it dawned on me why it's so lonely. Because a house in the suburbs is no place at all, really. You could sit on your front porch during the middle of the day or even evening or morning you could sit there for several hours and never see a single person, right? And, and this is a space that is supposed to be a home. Uh, what is a home without uh, other people? And of course, you have your family, but is that really all a community is? It's just the, the three or four people you live with and, and no other interactions, no other people to exchange information with? It's, it's just a very, very lonely space to be in. And I, and I guess if you have a job that you're constantly commuting to and you know, you, you're distracted from that reality a little bit, um, which is probably why so many people turn to TV, right? To try and uh, escape the... F or Oxy. Right, yeah, exactly. Well, I, it should be no surprise that as suicides climb, the predominant place that they occur are, well, you know, first and foremost, rural areas. When, but when you control for poverty... Uh, suburbs are the most likely place that you are to kill yourself, and w which maybe brings me to this this final uh, point about why these places suck. Without getting into this final final point, which I'll do in a second, but like suburbs aren't safer. This is one of the major motivations again that I see for people talking about why they wanted to move into suburbs in the first place. Um, and and I think it's because they've been sold this image and everything about the suburbs is really designed to sell you something. And, and I'll get to these stats in a second, but then I want to introduce you to the idea of the uh, 20 minute house. So this is something I alluded to earlier and really ties in well with our old friend, Edward Bernays. The 20 minute house. Is that kind of like how William Levitt could build 150 houses in a single day? No, it's not. 
that has nothing to do with how many houses you can build in a day. I mean, if he was do if he was doing one at a time, that probably comes out to about twenty minutes, or something. Um, I, I I mean, I don't know, Dan. You pull out the calculator and and you you figure that out. I'm gonna read. Okay. I'm gonna read the passage on the twenty minute house. Uh, from this this same book, Suburb Nation. <clears throat> the twenty minute house is not a derogatory label. Quite the opposite. It refers to the fact that a house has only twenty minutes to win the affection of a potential buyer since that is the average length of a realtor visit. The building industry has responded to this phenomenon by creating a product that is at its best for the first 20 minutes that one is in it. Specifically, the house is usually organized around a tall, great room, from which, immediately upon entering, the potential buyer is astounded by partial views of almost every other room in the house. The disadvantage of this organization is that there is no acoustical privacy for the individual rooms. Something that, of course, is not discovered until after moving day. Similarly, because so much of the budget is spent on the front of the house, much to the detriment of the street space, the back of the house ends up being a few sliding glass doors in a dead flat wall, such that the backyard offers no privacy either. You exit the rear door to find yourself completely exposed in a windswept lot, directly visible to the occupants of five other houses identical to your own. I think this really epitomizes the suburb experience for me, at least in terms of the architecture and housing of that living component of the sprawl that we were talking about earlier, Daniel, and that these houses so often aren't designed with people in mind. Uh, just like more, we are not designing these suburbs with people in mind, we're designing them around cars. These houses aren't designed around people, they're designed around consumers and generating something that is a product, first and foremost, that will be sold more than a living space or a place for people to live and build a community. And this different way of thinking, and it's subtle at first, but the more you think about it and the more you look at these places, the more obvious it becomes. The difference is that a product has no place. It doesn't care about where it's dropped. It doesn't care about the larger content of its community. It doesn't care about anything that extends beyond the confines of the property line, things that increase its street curbside value. So when you look at these houses from the front, this typical McMansion style of, of building, you know, it's very impressive. But behind that is cheap stucco. The architectural decisions don't make sense. You don't have usable space inside. There's no such things as continuity in the flow of the house. There's no privacy. Things are much cheaper and start degrading and breaking down. And you realize very quickly that you haven't bought a place to live, a place to grow up, a place to grow old. You've bought an appearance. Something that you can look at from the outside and appreciate. Gaze outside your front windows and see your neighbors are similarly successful to yourself. But inside, it's a hollow, unthought place that you eventually get upset with, frustrated by. Pushing not only just the frustrations you feel on the road itself as you drive from place to place, from work to home to eat, back home, and on and on forever, chauffeuring around your family, your kids, and never knowing exactly why you're here. And maybe that's why we move so much, because we're always unhappy with these places. They're never what we want. And we're always searching for this thing that well, we know what it is. When we close our eyes, we can visualize this, see this community. But for some reason, we keep avoiding that. We keep buying these same boxes. These houses are designed with consumption in mind, first and foremost. Just like Bernays suggested that in order to sell products like pianos, we should change the very way that we design our houses in order to build music rooms and leave a place for a piano. 
These houses are just giant empty places to put our hopes, our dreams, our trappings of success for people who come visit us and leave vast amounts of room for all the knickknacks and consumer products that we acquire in our quest of trying to fill this hole in our heart that is created by this lack of community from the very places that we choose to spend our lives. I want you to think for a second just how disruptive these communities are. Not only, you know, we've talked about this lack of flow from place to place, how you have to drive, how things are subdivided, how these giant roads act as impenetrable rivers, more or less. But I also want you to think about for a moment this lack of flow across time. In the past, somebody who lived in a traditional neighborhood, somebody who lives in a European style village or small town, you are born into a house. Maybe you die in that house. This is oftentimes the case. You might live down the street, you might live in this community still, but the house that you eventually come to own, you spend decades at until you're an old person, until eventually you can't care for yourself anymore. And then somebody from your family moves in or you find yourself in an assisted living care until you eventually pass away. Can you imagine that in a suburb? It's not even physically possible. When you're young, you buy a starter house, but it's too small to put your family in. It's in a bad school district, but it was the only thing you could afford at the time because the American housing market is pumped up by people using these as investments, not as places to live. Okay, you're having a family. You're trying to move up in life. So you move to this house in the nicer school district. Maybe it's more than you can pay, but it's something that you think you'll be there for a long time. You can raise a family. You move in, spend some few years there, but the school district starts going downhill as your kids start getting older. That often happens because municipalities, they start running out of money because this neighborhood is not brand new. So they have to divert maintenance funds to all these problems that they didn't foresee for the lack of growth. And it has to come from somewhere. The taxes go up or the quality of the schools go down. Okay, so you move again. That's a little bit of a loss, but you keep going. Now you've moved three times already and your kids haven't even moved out of your house. You imagine one day about moving to a smaller place, something that feels more like a community, something that you're trying to figure out, but you know, this neighborhood's nice, it's in a good school district, so you stay there. Your kids go to college, they move out. Finally, you can buy that home that you're going to retire in. You decide you're tired of the traffic that you've been dealing with for years as you drive to and from work every day, working these long hours trying to support this mortgage, this car payment, uh, saving up for college tuition for your kids, all this disastrous stuff that takes all of your time, funding, and energy that your whole life revolves around. But that's okay. You finally have a chance. You've made it. You've saved up enough money and you can retire somewhere that you like. You go outside of the suburbs that you were originally in, moving something maybe that was more like where you originally started. Maybe when you first bought your house, it was in a kind of farmy area. And then as time went on, the strip malls came and it got more developed and the traffic came. Well, now you move a little bit farther out. The process is invariably going to repeat itself. But you figure by that time, you know, you'll be moving on or dead. So you find this place farther out. But of course, that means it's farther away from everything. You can't walk to anywhere. You have to drive to buy your groceries, drive to go to church, drive to do anything. But you're getting older. Your eyesight's getting worse. You have an accident. And, and you're not sure if it's your fault or not. You decide to cheat on your license exam because your eyes are getting worse, but you can't get rid of your license. That means you lose your ability to live. Kids find out it's a big drama. So they decide and force you to move into a retirement community. It's nice. You don't have to drive anywhere. 
It's all filled with old people. They have a clubhouse, a corner store, all the things you could need. You have golf carts to drive from place to place. Uh, but time goes on. You can no longer care for yourself. You're far from your kids because they don't live near these retirement facilities. They don't come to visit as much. They're not there to take care of you when you fall. They're not there to be able to live with you when you need that help. So they move you to an assisted living home. It's a depressing place. It's expensive. Your health degrades and you fucking die. That is the suburban experience. You're cut off from your own family because of the choices that you've made in the communities that you've decided to set yourself down in. In a typical traditional neighborhood, your family would be close by because the community they desire is right there because the work that could support them is right there because everything is there. When you lose your license, it's not a death sentence. You can still walk downstairs. I see it on my street. 80-year-old women going down the bodega coming back with these bags. They will be living in this same apartment until the day they die, probably. They have roots, they have community, they have culture, and they have a place that they can actually call their home. This is something that we really don't have anymore in the United States. For everyone who has an experience that is centered around the suburb, this thing entirely lacks, which is maybe why we put so much focus on group identity, on these larger national identities. And, and the, the diseases that that causes because we have to have some sort of belonging community and we're not finding that in our day-to-day local individual life. Those relationships, those communities are lacking. And so we turn for somewhere to find them and that invariably spirals out into these problems politically on these national scales that our country is seeing right now tearing itself apart. And this is playing out around the world slowly as people adopt this very sick American way of life. Uh, nope. No, David. Um, no, 150 houses a day uh, is actually comes out to two houses every 20 minutes. So William Levitt was actually building the 10-minute house. So Oh, shit. Yeah, I don't know what you've been talking about for the past 30 minutes, but... Uh, I, don't, I don't know either. Checkmate. I, I think I just had an out-of-body experience. Yeah, it's, it's the 10-minute house, not the 20-minute house. Okay, well, uh, now that we've cleared that up, uh, there's one more thing I want to talk about real quick because I know this episode is running really long, but like I said, we have a lot to say, and which is partially why we moved to these bi-weekly research episodes so we have the time to put all this stuff together. Um, Very quickly, suburbs are ecological disasters. Um, Of course, on a very local environmental level, uh, this sprawl, this additional driving causes catastrophic environmental damage. But when we're talking about things on a global scale, especially the scale that happens when uh, tens and hundreds of millions of Americans live in this style, that damage accelerates, it explodes, and it goes off the charts. Uh, people who live in suburbs pollute two to four times more than the comparable city dweller or rural area dweller. Suburbs are the most polluting part of this country, and this is the most polluting country in the world. So greenhouse gas emissions per capita are the highest in the entire world in the American suburb. And this is driven primarily by the fact that people have to fucking drive everywhere constantly in order to do anything, that goods have to be shipped in, that they consume a vast amount of material resources, much more so than more confined population-dense areas. And this is not even counting the additional greenhouse gas emissions that occur from all that asphalt and pavement and that is put down. These suburbs are quite literally, if we ignore everything else, just this environmental damage, the suburbs are quite literally destroying the earth. Well, I just want to mention the the catastrophic land use. Land use is one of the major causes of climate change. And of course, as you would expect, 
sprawl destroys rural land and the farmlands that goes with it because the development value of land, the, the potential value from development always surpasses agricultural values until you, you force industrial inputs to that. A quick stat, between 1950 and 1990, 90% of the farms in Vermont disappeared. Uh, similarly, in Western Massachusetts, uh, when populations exploded after World War II, uh, some of the most fertile agricultural land in the United States became overrun with suburban sprawl. Planners panicked, and in an attempt to preserve the rural countryside, they passed zoning laws that required developers to build large minimum house lots and other laws that effectively separated the uses of buildings, uh, like we've talked about. The idea was that, well, you know, if houses had to be built on large land lots, the countryside would be preserved. But instead, it just meant that houses overran farms and the land between them uh, got used for nothing as it was too small for a typical farm and too large for uh, the family living there to manage it. So sprawl, which the laws intended to halt, actually intensified as a result. Beautiful. Uh, truly a disaster. It, it, it takes the worst components of city living and the worst components of rural living. Um, I just realized I forgot to mention those crime stats. Uh, basically. Uh, I'm just going to very quickly summarize that. If you live in a suburb, you're more likely to die than in rural America or most of the major cities in the United States. This is because, one, there's just as much violent crime, if not more, in suburbs. There's just as much nonviolent crime, if not more, in suburbs than in even the the most violent cities. Uh, there is much more road deaths in in suburbs. And there's surprisingly almost as many pedestrian deaths and Way more pedestrian deaths per capita in suburbs, partially because these things are designed not with pedestrians in mind. So you're more likely to die in a car accident. You're more likely to get murdered. You're more likely to get mugged. Uh, you are uh, more likely to kill yourself. The suburbs are the most dangerous place that you can live and raise a family. And uh, the old idea of the city being a dangerous thing has not been true for decades. It is an old holdover. And when you tell your family that you're moving to the city and they're like, oh, it's be safe or whatever, they're just living out on outdated information. They are in far more danger than you are. So that's something nice to take home over Thanksgiving. You can let everybody know that. Yeah. Really make you popular at the dinner table. I am so popular. So <laughs> let's close this out. Uh, I mean, this is, this is a very heavy negative episode. Though in, in not a defeatist kind of way like a lot of things are. Like when we talk about uh, the end of the ocean because it's deoxygenation, acidification, whatever. I look at that and I'm just, oh, fuck, what do I do? Nothing. But suburbs are actually a very manageable problem. Like we can deal with this. This is something that we can really deal with and actually should be something where we focus a lot of energy on. Because as you fix suburbs, you fix a lot of other problems. You start rebuilding community. You start reducing environmental impacts. Uh, you start spurring the economy. Mm. All these things end up having great positive side effects. So, and, and, and they're very manageable. It's not an impossible task by any means. There are, have been several um, successful attempts already to revitalize various suburbs. There are projects going on the way right now to revitalize uh, various malls. Projects also revitalizing cities. Uh, Detroit has seen great success in that so far and it's continuing. So if you want to move to Detroit, you should get in now before the uh, real estate market heats up even more over there. But there's a lot that can be done. And, and it's, a lot of this centers on changing some laws, um, adjusting zoning. Uh, a lot of small towns, like I mentioned, are now redeveloping their city centers. 
finding a lot of economic value in doing that. Yeah, that's true. Although, unfortunately, a lot of it is in the name of gentrification. Yes. Without including those affordable units and, you know, all the things that go yes. on with gentrification. <laughs> no, that's a good point. Um, and it's, it's a lesson that cities have learned that you have to mandate a certain percentage of uh, units being set aside as affordable housing units. But because the mandate in revitalizing a small town suburb is not the same as, as revitalizing a city, they usually leave that out because their first and foremost uh, objective is to raise property values. And uh, setting money aside for more affordable housing does the opposite of that. But uh, that's because they're also ignorant because adding these more affordable housing units increases the variety of stores that you have open in your area, which spurs further economic development and more housing development in a mixed use way beyond that. So they found uh, actually those are economic benefits and it doesn't just behoove you to have a bunch of homogenous rich people living in the same place. Even not talking about the empathetic nature and the psychic ability of all of us to survive in a world like that. So being sure that we're developing things like multi-use, understanding that people actually do enjoy walking places when they have places to walk and can do so safely in a beautiful way. Um, the way that we design our suburbs are just awful. Uh, you all already know how I feel about lawns, so I'm not going to get into that. But in theory, lawns could be good things if they're shared public spaces that are seen as communal spaces where you can commune and build community, then that is a great way to start. Get rid of garages. Front-facing garages are ugly. They fucking suck. Put them behind houses. Alleyways are awesome. And uh, they're very unpopular in suburbs, but they're actually a great way to shift this eyesore, which makes people think about cars, which takes up a third to two-thirds of the front of a house and has been consternating architects for decades. Get rid of those. Shove the houses closer together. Yeah, people will bitch about it, but it actually creates a more homogenous, beautiful neighborhood. Think something like Charleston, which is something like this with alleyways, with houses very close, which is considered one of the most beautiful places in the country. It's very easy to develop neighborhoods and communities that look like that. And those neighborhoods are oftentimes sold at much higher rates for developers than they would be for the equivalent amount of space or property, uh, square footage. Uh, amenities as a traditional development. So it really makes economic sense too, but builders and developers are really set in their ways because of larger conceptions about what consumers want, despite, for the most part, most consumers really don't want to live in gated communities, something like 12% do. Most consumers do want to live next to parks that are walkable, something like 60%. We already know these things. We just ignored this advice. We've continued to decide that uh, what is cheap and easy and proven to be successful is the only way to do things. And I, I'm sure there's a financial instrument where banks are unwilling to take risks of this for loans, uh, developers doing the same. But when you get the occasional developer that does take a risk, places like Seaside, Florida, they have found enormous success in this process. Uh, and, and even back where we grew up, Daniel, in downtown Lawrenceville, for example, has really revitalized their location, um, gotten on some lists of like, Great places to live. Swanee, Georgia, similar to this. I know the guy who did that. By taking this advice, by, by making walkable, mixed-use communities that are integrating people, places to shop, places to work, places to live, uh, civic places, and eliminating as much as possible that pavement. And next thing you know, you don't have a suburb, you have a town. And then quick add to that, support land trusts because they're doing a lot of work pooling resources so that they can 
preserve land, conserve agricultural land such that young farmers can then access them. There's a lot of different types. We, I won't get into it here. So I think that's a long enough episode, David. Uh, I would say it's, it's certainly a lot to think about. Oh, yes. Uh, but I really do hope that you all think about this. Uh, write us. Tell us all about your dream uh, subdivisions, your dream neighborhoods, what your dream place to live looks like. I would love to know. If you want to read all the information that we gathered to create this episode, check out those books that Daniel and I mentioned, as well as read a full transcript of this episode. You can do all of that on our website at ashesashes.org. I'm also going to throw up a cool map on there of the pollution of cities versus suburbs. Um, It's a really great graphic that I think illustrates much better than I can summarize uh, the disaster, the disease that the suburbs are on the world. Yeah, um, definitely a lot of time and research goes into making these episodes possible. I'm not really sure how I'm going to find the time to edit this monstrosity. So um, if you'd like to support us and, and uh, encourage us to keep going with all these, these efforts, you, our listener, can support us. Uh, we are listener-supported, and we appreciate all your support. You can do it in so many different ways. You can uh, give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app. You can write us a review. You can recommend us to a friend. Um, you can uh, discuss these ideas with your family and friends. We, we've also heard from people who organize listening parties around these topics. Uh, again, the goal here is to spread awareness for our need to degrow our economies, do as best we can to create resilient communities in the face of coming ecological collapse. And hey, that's not going to happen just because you're listening to the two of us spout off these ideas. It's going to come from you getting out there in your community, creating community and getting people fired up for a better world. Um, but more importantly, you can send us money through patreon.com slash ashesashescast. We'd like to thank everyone who has supported us so far. I'm a little late on getting the stickers out for this month, but I promise you will receive them. We'd like to thank our associate producers, John Fitzgerald and Chad Peterson. And if you'd like to send us an email, like David mentioned, uh, you can do that at contact at ashesashes.org. But that's not the only way to contact us. We actually have a phone number that you can call in and leave a voice message. That number is 313-99-ASHES. That's 313-992-7437. We're going to take all those messages and compile them into a call-in show once we get enough of them from you. So if you want to be part of that, definitely give us a call, leave us a message. And if you are an international listener who doesn't want to make an international call, I don't blame you. Feel free to just record your question and either email it to us or post it to our Discord, which you can find a link to on our website. If you click the community button, Discord, join that. It's a great chat community. We love everyone on there. There's a couple hundred of you and you are all great. If none of this floats your boat, you can also reach out to us and follow us on your favorite social media network at Ashes Ashes Cast. There's some great news stories, memes, and much more. Next week, Daniel and I are going to be traveling for an upcoming show. Uh, we're excited about that. But don't fret, because you will still be getting an episode, one of our enjoyable chat sessions. And uh, we both have a lot to talk about. There's a lot of things that we've done in the past couple weeks. So uh, we're excited to share, and we hope you'll tune in for that. But until then, this is Ashes Ashes. Bye. Bye-bye.